You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Briliana Harley, or Lady Harley, the English Puritan wife and mother, who often suffered severe, debilitating illnesses, wrote the following words to her son Edward, who was studying at Oxford in the 1630s. It is the hand of my gracious God, and though it be sharp, yet when I look at the will of God in it, it is sweetened to me. For to me there is nothing that can sweeten any condition to us in this life, but as we look to God in it, and see ourselves, his servants, in that condition in which we are. Therefore, when I consider my own afflictions, they are not so bitter when I look at the will of God in them. He is pleased it should be so. And then should not I be pleased it should be so? What's remarkable about, remarkable about this letter is that it wasn't remarkable for Lady Harley to talk this way. In the nearly 400 letters we have from her pen, her trust in the Lord through various afflictions runs throughout her prose. Well, Michael, last week we focused on the American Puritans, and here we are this week going across the pond to England to consider Brilliana Harley. Now, why should we care about this particular English Puritan? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. Um, I think at the forefront for me, one of them is the fact that uh, she's a woman and um, a mother and uh, a wife. And uh, probably it's, it's you, you know, it's, it's only been in the last uh, three decades or more or so that uh, Christian scholarship has recognized the importance of spending time writing the biographies and um, uh, investigating the thought and lives of Christian women. I mean, you, you can find uh, Christian biographical studies of women, Christian women uh, before that time, of course. But um, uh, the way that church history has been taught, it is all too frequently been taught as a list of, of men. And um, it was Jane Austen 200 years ago who said um, <clears throat> in the mouth of one of her characters, um, history uh, vexes me. Um, all it is is long, long stories of kings and popes and battles and not a woman to be seen anywhere. And uh, that's in the, the mouth of, of Catherine Moreland in Northanger Abbey. And it's, it's obviously not clear whether it's Jane Austen's own view or not, but it, 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 it is, it's, it's, it's representative of the way that uh, Christians have failed to, to remember that half the church is women. In fact, more than half the church is women, um, except in times of revival, usually women outnumber men by, you know, out of say, if you take a percentage, uh, 60% to 40%. In times of revival, it, it, it's more like 50-50. So women have played a significant role in the life of the church. 
And I think in my own case, um, and I've only discovered Brilliana Harley in the last probably three or four years. And um, when I think back to my own theological education, when I took church history, what is the equivalent of what we call church history one, church history two at Southern? And most schools have this. They have two introductory courses, term A, term B, uh, right at the beginning of the, of the academic study for a master of divinity or a theological degree. Uh, take, you take an overview of church history. And I remember, um, and I did, it didn't occur to me at the time at all. This was in the late 70s. But it was about 15 years later in the 90s when I, I remember looking out onto my, in my classroom and there was about a third of the class were women. And I, I suddenly realized the only people I ever talk about are men. I, I never, you know, it's Athanasius and uh, Boniface and Anselm and Calvin and Luther and Edwards and Owen. And yeah, maybe their wives get a mention. But it's men. It's it's a long story of men. And I don't know whether I knew Northanger Abbey at that time, but that certainly applies. And um, so what I began to do, I began to realize that feminists, uh, secular feminists, have a point. We've we The history we've remembered is simply the history of men. And so I began to teach myself um, the history of women in the life of the local church. And would take opportunities when I would go to churches to give small seminars to speak about a woman on occasion. And um, uh, I think it's this is only proper. I think that uh, if you ask a lot of women, so give me three models from church history who have helped you as a Christian. I, I think that they'd, they'd be hard put to. No, they might just remember yeah. the six wives of... Henry VIII. Of Henry VIII, well, yeah, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, probably three of them are good models, but be right. that as it may. Um, so that was a re that's a real real reason. And then um, why just women in general? And then I I came across Brilliana Harley, and it, it's a it's a treasure trove. Her letters, mostly written to her son Edward, whom she calls Ned, mm -hmm. are just a just a delight of a Christian woman. In the midst of calamitous times, um, England is careering towards civil war. Her son won't finish university because civil war will break out, and he'll enlist in the parliamentary armies with his father, fighting against the crown. And uh, Brilliana herself will be besieged in her castle in uh, Hertfordshire on the Welsh border. Her castle lay on a very important route from England into Wales, and it was important to control that, to control the flow of uh, goods and men and so on into that part of Wales. And the castle was besieged twice. And she, she withstands the first siege for a significant number of, of weeks. With about 40 people, she is able to hold the castle against about 300 royalists. Uh, the second siege uh, takes place uh, after her death. And the castle falls and was actually destroyed by the royalists. And the family would eventually get money in the 1660s to rebuild the castle. So if you go to the castle today where she lived, the 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 part she lived in is still a ruin. But hmm. the family have rebuilt um, really a, a, a gorgeous 17th, uh, late 17th, early 18th century home behind it. That's so, really, uh, Michael, that's a, a no, remarkable. Sorry. No, I wanted to jump in and get uh, pick your brain a little bit more on this. 
Uh, I've heard different estimates. You mentioned 300 royalists, uh, part of this siege. And if just to place it for our listeners, we're talking about three months in the summer of 1643, uh, thereabouts. And, and she withstands this. This is just incredible to me. Uh, understanding the, the district or county that she's living in is overwhelmingly partisan to the crown, right? So she's, she's really a minority in this area. And, and I've heard it put this way, literally her neighbors train their cannons on the walls of the castle. <laughs> so she, what courage to stand almost literally alone while this partisan area just the, for the monarchy is literally uh, trying to de, you know, destroy her, the castle and everything, while her husband is where? Her husband's in London. He's kind of trapped in London. Um, he was part of the parliamentary um, um, hierarchy. Uh, he actually was uh, the head, <laughs> talk about, this is actually germane too, to some day. He was the head of the committee for the purification of, um, of churches, which meant he was to go around and itemize monuments that should be torn and pulled down that in their minds were uh, uh, either uh, influenced by Roman Catholic uh, idolatry or whatever. So he was basically in charge of pulling down monuments and if it, maybe smashing a few stained glass windows. So he was about canceling things. He was he was into canceling. Yeah, he was part was. of the pure yeah. of the Puritan cancel culture. <laughs> That's right uh, of the 1630s, and um, so he's stuck in London and he can't get back because, as you mentioned, Hertfordshire is basically mostly uh, royalist, mm -hmm. and um, the king the king actually sends uh, a personal letter. Charles sends a personal letter to uh, Brilliana and Charles basically the first, says, "Yep." yep Surrender the castle. I'm your king. Like, what on earth are you doing? And, um, and she, she says holds no. the castle. Yeah. Oh, she it's says, incredible. yeah. She basically says no. She's got about 40 men in the castle. Her best friend is with her. Her best friend gets shot through the eye. Hmm. Uh, her eye gets, uh, she survives, but she's shot in the eye. And um, it must it was a frightful experience. Oh, I can't imagine. Um, I don't, I don't... But a woman, she was a woman of of steel, but also of great tenderness. I mean, you read these letters to her son, and um, you realize some things have never changed. The way parents, <clears throat> Christian parents, uh, long for their ki children's spiritual growth and conversion and, and walking with the Lord. And it's it's all there. It's it, They're just great. And I, I realized I I'd found a treasure trove. I'm uh, I've, I've since discovered that there are one or two other scholars who are working on Brilliana Harley. There's um, a woman in England. I think she's at the University of Exeter. Hmm. But essentially, she's unknown. So I asked, I remember uh, Joel Beakey, uh, who is the, the great expert on Puritanism. Uh, I forget what he asked me. I said, uh, at one point, I said, so um, I'm working on Brilliana Harley, assuming he would know her. And he wrote back and said, who, who, who's she? I'd never heard of her. And I wow. thought to myself, if Dr. Beakey has never heard of Brilliana Harley, man, she is obscure, but uh, it's a treasure trove. Well, it may be warranting a longer work uh, oh, by yeah. you, yeah. maybe a, a full-blown uh, biography of Lady Harley, as she was called. And and Michael, if I could, just a, a couple of biographical points about her. She's remarkable, not only for, of course, her, her godliness, and we'll get to her letters, 
uh, I think we'll, we'll end up quoting from some of them, but also her political acumen. I mean, she was every bit in, in lockstep with her husband. And to be clear, you know, they, they weren't separatists. I mean, they no. believed in a, in a constitutional monarchy. So they yeah. weren't, you know, anti. Yeah, she's, uh, she's, a, she's a Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. And so when, uh, when at the end of the 1640s, uh, Oliver Cromwell and the independents basically purged parliament uh, of men that Cromwell thought were standing in the way of a Republican government, her, her husband gets kicked out. And, uh, but by that time, Brilliana's with the Lord. She's died, and um, uh, she she would have uh, she probably would have been a bit aghast at Cromwell. Um, her yeah. father, her husband, was not happy with Cromwell at all. And um, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and tragically, uh, it was shortly after she withstood the siege. I mean, it was October of sixteen forty three after that very difficult summer where she died. And I yeah. guess of of a cold, maybe the result. Yeah, of she she I, yeah she she picked up some some flu bug, and mm. uh, it 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 uh, was um, uh, it killed her. Let me even or point this out, which you know, but for our listeners, she's remarkable for this reason. Robert, her husband, she she was actually his third wife, uh, and she was twenty one years uh, her junior, so he was twenty one years older than her, and and I bring that up. Only because that, to me, is remarkable that she would enter into a situation like that that could must have had its own challenges or difficulties, even allowing for a different period of time. Uh, but such a devoted wife and mother, uh, and then of course was standing so much time while he was away in London, uh, in Parliament, and her uh, being on her own. Uh, yeah, it says it says a lot for her in a number of respects. Number one. Um... She has about 10 children. I think about seven or eight of them survive into adulthood, uh, most of whom become believers, if not all. Her son, Ned, whom she writes to at university that we have most of the first letters born, to. Firstborn, right, her yeah, firstborn. firstborn. Yeah. Um, in his latter years, he was a member of the court of Charles II, a very decadent court. And he was known to be an upstanding, godly Christian in the midst of a very, very difficult world. And uh, a lot of that is owing to Brilliana, the, the, the advice and uh, principles of Christianity that she drilled into her son, as it were, when he was a young boy. And uh, we're not sure when he was converted, but he was a Christian when he went up to Oxford. And he, he doesn't seem to have wavered from that. And yeah. it was his son who probably is the first prime minister of England. Um, I did not know that. There is a debate about whether he, uh, Robert Harley, um, his son, is the prime minister or whether it's Robert Walpole. Most most people argue it's Robert Walpole who was the first prime minister. But um, during the reign of William III, who succeeds James II, uh, Robert Harley was, a, was the leading minister of state. So her grandson was the leading minister of state during the reign of William III. And um, Harley Street in London is named after him. Okay. The, which is, a, I mean, that is the, the street of doctors. That's where Martin Lloyd-Jones, for instance, had his uh, uh, practice with uh, right. Lord Horder and got his start as a, as a, as a, as a, as a practitioner. And that street is named well, after uh, Brilliana Harley's grandson. 
Michael, you are connecting dots, making our world smaller in the best way, showing how these things are connected. Uh, incredible. Incredible. You know, she, as her firstborn, and you mentioned earlier, she would call Edward endearingly Ned uh, as she would write these letters to him. Maybe we could talk a little bit about just the function of letter writing and how intentional Berliana, I think, was in shaping her young son through the pen. I mean, through the letter. She was always, if I understand her rightly, and very acutely aware of the gentry, you know, that they're gentry and and shaping her son in these most formative years at Oxford, but through the pen. So these weren't just, hey, you know, even though they were, I hope you're eating well, uh, getting some rest. Those things were there. But she was really theologically, politically shaping him during this time. Would you would you agree? Oh, yes. I mean, the letters are very skillful. Um she she'll be usually begin with obviously your your normal salutation but then she'll say something about his you know i hope you're eating well um he'll have told her maybe he's got some dietary issues or complaints physical complaints and she'll give him advice uh one of the most curious pieces of advice is he's got some stomach troubles so she tells him to start taking licorice water and then at one point she says you need to boil it with beer <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, Never heard of that. I, I don't drink, so I've got no idea what boiled beer would be like <laughs> infused with liquor's water. I mean, it sounds vile, but it um, does. She obviously thought it was a cure. Sometimes she sends him cakes. Uh, I have no idea how long these cakes were in the in the post. <laughs> Get getting to Oxford, or if they were in any state to be eaten. But um, she is home remedies and food. And then uh, she subtly <laughs> will will shift into spiritual concerns. It's it, it's mm-hmm. it's it, the, the her ability to segue into spiritual concerns is marvelous. And what what is I, I've read a number of her letters, and she never comes across as preaching because hmm. she'll often share her own experience of her walk with God. And uh, she knows very well what she's doing. Her son's 15. It's his first time away from home. He's he, he's homesick. Uh, he, he's not able to find a church initially where he can worship. And so she's using these letters as a vehicle of spiritual presence. She's using these letters as a vehicle of her being present, as it were, in the room, giving him spiritual advice. Um uh, you get you get a very good window on um, what a Puritan household looked like in terms of the use of the means of grace, prayer, uh, family worship, the scriptures, the emphasis on the spirit, uh, the Sabbath. Uh, she has a postscript mm-hmm. on a number of places where she says, uh, please observe the Sabbath. Uh, very Puritan, Sabbatarian. Um and they're, they're, they are marvelous. Uh, they're a marvelous example of the way the Puritans and then the evangelicals in the 18th century do the same, were able to use the letter as a vehicle of spiritual nurture. Overwhelmingly, that seems to be her concern, not just for his learning, uh, but for his spiritual well-being. And I agree with you, Michael. It comes through so much as I've spent a fair bit of time now immersing myself in her letters. Here's an example. In in the midst of a letter, she will pivot to something like this. She'll say, quote, keep your heart close with your God. 
Oh, let it be your resolution and practice in your life rather to die than sin against your gracious and holy God. I just find mm. that remarkable. Here's a mom talking to her 15, 16-year-old yeah. son about uh, rather than, a, you know, you know, don't offend your God, uh, make it your practice never to sin against him. Yeah. And so really the, the Puritan home that he was reared in was was extended through the letter. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I wouldn't want to say that her his father did not have an input on his life. Uh, mm-hmm. We, I, I don't think we know enough to know to what degree his father had that input. But definitely, I want to ask his you about mother him. had an so enormous there isn't a lot there? Imp- impact. Sorry, okay. go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Robert, his father, and wondered if he had an equally uh, spiritual role in in Ned's life, but we don't know. We don't know. We, we just don't have the letters. Okay. And um, he, uh, yeah. Ned served with his father in the Civil War, and I'm not sure if they were in the same regiment or not, so there would have been opportunities there. Um, okay. And his father would go up to Oxford. His, his The mother didn't. Brilliana did not. Um, so the father might have had opportunities to see him that way as well. I mean, if you're dry, if you're writing, sorry, if you're writing from Hartford, Hertfordshire, where they where they are, sorry, they're in Herefordshire. Forgive me, they're in Herefordshire, not Hertfordshire. If you're if if you're writing from Herefordshire, you have to go through Oxford to London. So he would that that would probably be a convenient stop. In fact, it would be almost um, it wouldn't be halfway, but it would be a, a great place to stop on the way to London. Well, yeah, I, I did wonder, and sadly, is this true, Michael? We don't have any of Ned's responses to his mom. And I, don't, no, I don't think yeah, we do. I haven't... Yeah, we don't. Okay. We, what, we, what we hear are, you know, uh, she's quoting him or she refers mm-hmm. to what he said. Mm-hmm. So we're hearing one side of the conversation. But as I said right mm-hmm. at the beginning, um, in his latter years, he becomes a Presbyterian elder in uh, a church in Herefordshire. Um and is known as a godly, a godly man, even though he, because he's involved, he's, he's, he's um, aristocracy and he has to be at court. And uh, the court of Charles II was deeply dissolute. I mean, you've got a king who's got probably 15, maybe more illegitimate children um, who regularly went to bed with any woman who struck his fancy and whom he was able to seduce or cajole into bed um uh, that's the king of just a just a, a, a you know a man probably the the populace didn't know all that was going on in the in the court but robert uh, 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 the son would have uh, but he's in the midst of that a crooked generation as it were he's able to maintain his principles of godliness and uh, so much of that as i said has got to do with with brilliana's lavish mentoring of him as a young as a young man not only was she so politically astute what i love about her is she was uh very theologically astute uh and i i don't want to misquote you may know how many languages she spoke she was clearly so bright herself i I remember one story i read about she read a, a biography of luther in french and she was so moved by it that she wrote a uh, one of her letters, uh, she wrote of it to Ned back at Oxford. And I want to quote from this and get your comment, Michael, and you're probably aware of this, but 
I love what she says about Luther, and that's primarily why I want to read it, because I think she got Luther and she understood uh, why he was the way he was. Anyway, here's what she writes to Ned, just to encourage him not to disparage uh, Martin Luther. She says, quote, and one thing more. <laughs> so this was maybe coming up toward the end of a letter. Uh, this just came to mind. And, and again, she had been reading this uh, biography of Luther. One thing more, I must tell you that I am not of their mind who think if he had, speaking of Luther, if he had been of a milder temper, it had been better. And so Erasmus says, but I think no other spirit could have served his turn. He was to cry aloud like a trumpet. He was to have a Jonas spirit, end quote. So Ned, don't buy uh, the voices that say he should have been a milder man. Uh, he was to cry out like a trumpet. She's defending Luther. I love it. Yeah, she's um, she is very well read theologically. She's reading Calvin in the Institutes. Um, for example, she she tells Ned to get hold of the Institutes in Oxford, and uh, tell her what tell her tell her what he think he thinks of uh, the first book of the Institutes. And she's read them. <laughs> she knows them. Uh, she's fluent in Latin, French. In fact, she prefers to read in French than English. Now, she was born in wow. Holland. So that's why she's got this really weird name. I mean, the Puritans are into weird names, big time. Uh, and it was after Brill. What yeah, was Brill? B Brielle, uh, which is a port in Holland. Yeah. The English, the English okay. in the in the the Dutch had been fighting against the Spanish in the because uh, it was the Spanish Netherlands, the, and the Dutch threw them out, and the English helped them. And to help the uh, the the Spanish the Dutch cause, the English put troops in three uh, seaports, and for a number of years, the governors of those towns were English, and that's how uh, uh, Brilliana's father ended up being there, and that's where she was born. And he he thought he was being brilliant by naming her <laughs> after the town Brilliana. That there's no other. I mean, there's no other. The, the name he made the name up. But yeah. <laughs> every every generation, but not without yeah, good every reason. Every generation since Brilliana, where there's been a woman, that's been a middle name. So they've kept the name of Brilliana in the family all the way down to the present day. I mean, she has direct descendants. Uh, he's an earl. Um, wow. I forget his title, exact title. Um, but uh, there's a Brilliana in the family every generation. If there's a <clears throat> if there's a woman. Um, so she's she's raised in a Dutch environment, fluent in French, um, fluent in Latin. I'm a, I'm not sure whether she read Greek, but she's a very accomplished woman, very very accomplished, and um, uh, she seeks to use that uh, educational background for for God's glory. Um, reading uh, a theological literature in the original languages, uh, encouraging her son Ned to, to do the same. Well, Michael, as our time comes to a close, we maybe could summarize at the end here one or two takeaways. We could say, Brilliana, for today, uh, what would you highlight from Lady Harley that we can learn from today in the church? Well, I think, first of all, the importance of uh, mentoring one's children. Um, mm -hmm. And um, he was no longer in the home, so she took every opportunity she could in her writing. Uh, she'd sometimes write two or three times a week to him. Um, and, um, <clears throat> just the, the importance of pouring oneself into one's children and recognizing that the fruit of that may not be known for years. 
I mean, Brilliana has gone to be with the Lord in the 1640s. Uh, Her son really doesn't come into his own until probably the 1660s, easily 30 years later, after the return of the monarchy, and he starts to show his his worth as a Presbyterian elder. And uh, she saw none of that, Mm. but it would have thrilled her. And so I think I think Brillian is a good example of a good reminder to us that the the spiritual nurture of our children needs to be our priority. And we cannot allow, first of all, the state to do it. And while the church has a role in it, right. the first place is the is the parents. And um, you know, th- th- this should be so obvious. I mean, our culture. We, we, we're just here in Canada, we're going through a huge brouhaha about the fact that native children were taken away from their parents and put in residential schools. And at the same time, you've got people saying, well, maybe, maybe the state knows best in raising our children. And I'm thinking, man, it, it, <laughs> number one, we have to resist that as, as, as best as we can. And number two, haven't we learned yes. from the past? And Brilliana is a great example of a positive learning. How uh, here's a woman who invested herself in her children, and her children flourished. Um, I think that's one big takeaway. Well, I agree, Michael. And I would just add, and it's it's implied in what you're saying, is that spiritual nurture doesn't stop when they no. when they leave the no. home. Good, uh, good. Whether it's going off to Oxford, in 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 Ned's case. Uh, and that's been a, a good challenge to me. I have now, uh, I have a 21-year-old, a 20-year-old, and an 18-year-old. So I have three college-age uh, children, none of which are at Oxford, Oxford but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> but, but Lady Hardly is a great reminder to me that the spiritual nurture of my children didn't no. end at 18. No. You know, when they, when they fly uh, out of the nest. And I think, I think the one word. thing that children so actually— very encouraged. They don't realize until they have children is it doesn't end— even when they're 30, 31, 35, there's no. still that role that we play in their lives. Um, if we have nurtured that role when they're young, if they've learned to trust their yeah. parents, they won't always agree with us and they're free to make their own choices and they have to make their own choices. But if we've nurtured that relationship in the small things and the big things, you can imagine that the, the, the small things, mm-hmm. you know, advice about, you know, uh, you, you've got a weak stomach. Take licorice boiled with beer. <laughs> I mean, that's right. <laughs> uh, it sounds wretched to us, but th- there are these things that you know the the wisdom that we pass on to our children in in little things and big things, and we develop a relationship uh, that eventually w- will bear rich fruit. We we trust uh, to the glory of God, and Abrilliana is just a great example of this. Beads podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.